It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. This is all about trust now and personal responsibility and just being careful and not being selfish. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The idea of an irreversible move was taken off the table. You can't do that when you have no idea where the virus is going to go. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, no jab means no entry, according to Boris Johnson. The Prime Minister is, though, facing a backlash over his plans to make vaccination compulsory for nightclubs and other crowded venues from the end of September. He made the announcement from his own self-isolation on what was called Freedom Day. The chief scientific advisor to the government, Patrick Vallance, said during the Downing Street press conference that nightclubs had the potential to cause super-spreading events. But the idea of vaccine passports is sparking warnings from hospitality businesses that the plan will put thousands of jobs at risk. Kate Nichols, chief executive of the industry group UK Hospitality, said that the new vaccine certificates policy would be a hammer blow for nightclub operators. And when it comes to the travel rules, judges in London have now ruled in favour of a legal challenge brought by the owners of Stansted Airport, supported by a number of airlines. The judges said the government should continue to review its traffic light system airports also wanted the government to reveal the data that informed the risk assessments for each country. Well, joining us now is Jess Phillips, Labour MP for Birmingham Yardley since 2015, uh, joining us to talk about uh, the developments today, but also her book, Everything You Really Need to Know About Politics, My Life as an MP. Jess, welcome to the programme. Thanks so much for being with us. I just wanted to start on vaccine passports then. Do you think that they're a good Mm -hmm. idea? I mean, it seems like an odd idea to have something that's going to start in September while um, nightclubs are open currently. But to be honest, at the moment, I I have absolutely no faith that it will be a good idea. And I'm not entirely sure why a testing regime, uh, which seems to be weakening uh, as the virus grows, uh, rather than strengthening, isn't the the better option. Um, and what it feels like to me, to businesses in my community and my city, is there's just a sort of unknown and a changing, a moving feast that is deeply unhelpful. I, I, I personally, I, I can't see how it's going to work. But I suppose we do have to move to a point where people can be sure about the health uh, potentially of the people they are mixing with in close quarters and to that extent perhaps it makes sense whether in nightclubs or I suppose potentially in care homes in hospitals compulsory vaccination Mm -hmm. might be necessary in order that people could work there. 
Well, I mean, apart from the reality that people are getting COVID who've had the vaccine, our own health secretary has been uh, double vaxxed. So, it, it, again, that, that stresses for me a sort of testing regime. Uh, look, I'm not against there being freedoms for people who have been double vaccinated. I think that, you know, travel being a really uh, good example of um, double vaccination being able to be used in those areas. But... Uh, what I don't understand, once again, and this has been quite common throughout uh, the pandemic, uh, we had, um, if you remember, uh, last summer into autumn, whether you could uh, have a substantial meal with, with your beer in a pub meant that you, you could go and sit down in one, uh, whereas if you were just drinking a pint. So the, the government is currently not proposing the vaccine passport issue for pubs, but saying that close proximity people standing up in a building which happens in nightclubs is the problem but that definitely happens in pubs so it just seems like it's it's not going to have the trust or faith with uh, the british public when somebody like my 12 year old son can come up with all the reasons why it doesn't seem to make much sense Mm. What about travel? Um, you mentioned it. I mean, obviously, there's Birmingham Airport. There are mm. summer holidays Indeed. coming up. I mean, some schools have broken up already. I mean, this is um, millions of families up and down the land are thinking about this. How is it working then for, for yeah. Birmingham Airport? Well, it, it's not working. Um, and again, the sort of outbreak of confusion. Obviously, one of the most popular uh, holiday destinations for um, UK families is France. And we saw a sort of very weird new section on the, a sort of rust colour, if you will, a, a ready orange uh, being given out to France this week and, and lots of families in my constituency getting in touch with me not knowing what was going to happen. But the, it, it's simply not working for places like Birmingham Airport and the ambiguity and the lack of updates on on the light system, the traffic light system, I think is probably just forcing most people, like myself and my family, uh, to just simply go on holiday in the United Kingdom uh, this year, which is a terrible hammer blow to the airport and all the people in my constituency who work there. Uh, a lot of people feel, of course, everything that's that's gone wrong uh, with uh, the way this pandemic has been handled, and I think almost everyone acknowledges things have gone badly wrong, is down to the way that politics works in this country. And, of course, your book, Everything You Really Need to Know About Politics, is uh, really speaking to that, I guess. But people might also say, well, you're already a politician. Aren't you in part responsible for the reasons it doesn't work? Oh, uh, absolutely. I'm not here to say that, I, you know, sort of I'm uh, the arbiter of a perfect system. Um, but uh, the, the reality is, is that the, the political system in our country often doesn't respond to its people. Um, and that's in part down to the fact that it's not a particularly, uh, it's not a very representative system. So as a woman in the early days of COVID, it felt very, very, very clear that there were not women in the room in the discussions around uh, whether it was the furlough scheme for job retention, whether it was what was happening to childcare providers, certainly what was happening in schools. It never once felt as if the employment, the economic, uh, the economic uh, livelihood and welfare of women in our country was ever considered as something different to that of the men. And that is... That is solely because of the kind of people who end up uh, running our country uh, and they don't have the experiences of needing a childcare provider in the middle of the night because they've been put on a shift, for example. They don't rely necessarily on the same health services 
that we all rely on. They don't rely on the same education um, providers that we all rely on. And therein lies the problem that when these big decisions, especially in a time of crisis, are being made, they're being made by people who are not necessarily in touch with the reality on the ground. But that is sort of making a judgment about, you know, many of those men, obviously, who, who are perhaps parents themselves. But look, what needs to change um, now in terms of uh, these issues have been raised? You only need to look at mum's net or go to the um, school <laughs> playground to know that yeah. there are these issues. And it's been 18 months. So what needs to be done? Well, you know, what what people have to do is they have to be activated to campaign for these things. And Mumsnet is a really good example of that, where uh, women activate themselves, get involved in politics. And we saw a change in policy within, uh, you know, a year of the pandemic. Unfortunately, those who fell foul of it before around things like appointments for people on maternity, uh, going into maternity services. Um, But that is because people speak back. And the whole point in my book is I'm trying to encourage people to be more involved in politics by demystifying some of the the language, the the attitudes sort of what actually goes on in the building. Because I think a lot of people think that politics is basically two people stood at, you know, an, an old wooden box shouting at each other in funny terms, using funny terms that doesn't include them. And the reality is, is that people on things like Mumsnet, women in the playground, absolutely can activate themselves, be in touch with their politicians and change policy. And that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Well, let me point out, if I may, Jess, that, I mean, you talk about two people shouting each other across the dispatch box. In Prime Minister's <laughs> Questions, there has been a woman on one side of that debate, uh, but never in the Labour yep. Party. There's never been a Labour leader. It's the only major party that has never had a woman leader. What are you doing wrong? I mean, quite a lot, obviously, because that's a terrible fact, isn't it? I'm not here to defend that fact. I'm here to spend my time in uh, the Labour Party trying to improve uh, the systems that end up with that always being the case. But, you know, it's it's not to be defended. I have to say that Labour women tend to be, um, I would say, uh, more radical, for want of a better word, um, than Conservative women. And Conservative women who rise to the top of the Conservative Party don't threaten the status quo, whereas Labour women, I think, would massively change the system, and that's so maybe harder for some to swallow, even in the Labour Party. Um, but, yeah, it's a problem. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not here to defend the Labour Party's record on women in leadership. It does have more women MPs mm. than any other party. In fact, all of the other parties put together. Should Starmer step aside, though? I mean, talking of the leader currently holding the job, um, what could he do to improve the message? I mean, his the message has not cut the mustard in many ways throughout the pandemic from Starmer. No, I mean, I think that um, it's an incredibly difficult task, though, isn't it, to become the leader of a political party in a time. I've been in a room with Keir Starmer, I think, twice, maybe three times now in the last two years um, to try and build a team of people who could take a message out to the public when you can't even be around the table with those people. And the country, quite rightly, myself included, have been rooting for the government to get things right and trying to help the government get things right. Um, Because it's a crisis and you have to put things aside because I need Boris Johnson to be better so my 80-year-old father doesn't die Turns out his attitude toward those over 80 is probably not the same as mine and I want my dad alive more than him. But the reality is is that it's very, very hard in a time of such national crisis to cut through on anything. But, but I, I think that the Labour Party has got to do more. I'm, I'm, I'm 
going to say I think well, we need to be much more positive, much more future focused. Yeah. And it's time. It's very difficult to be positive and cheerful in the time of a global pandemic. There, so fair enough. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Well, a 1% increase in national insurance could pay for a long-term reform of social care and reduce NHS waiting lists. That's according to the Times. The new health and social care tax could raise £10 billion a year, but the Institute for Fiscal Studies and the Resolution Foundation think tanks have both criticised that idea of only raising money from working-age adults to cover people well over pension age. It's thought an announcement on social care may come this week, as Johnson marks two years since he became Prime Minister. And at least 430 migrants made the journey across the English Channel to the UK yesterday. That's understood now to be a new record for a 24-hour period. It's thought they came on 14 small boats. Around 50 people were seen landing on a beach in Kent in a single dinghy. And today, Caroline, there is some, uh, well, rather heavy criticism of the former Prime Minister, David Cameron. Yes, the rules around the way businesses interact with the government are being described as simply insufficient. This is a group of MPs who looked into the controversy around Cameron's work for the finance firm Greensill Capital. And they say that lobbying regulations do need to be strengthened. The former PM was texting the Chancellor directly about a coronavirus support scheme. The Treasury Committee says that while he did not actually break any rules, he should have been directed to more formal channels. Now, the UK the US and their allies have blamed the Chinese government for being the mastermind behind a series of cyber attacks, including the Microsoft Exchange hack earlier this year. President Biden says the investigation is still ongoing. Here, the Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab says China must end its, quote, systematic cyber sabotage. At the same time, concerns have been growing over a plan by a huge Chinese company, Tencent, to buy up the British game maker Sumo. It's the latest worry about China using its financial muscle in the UK. Although just a few years ago, David Cameron and George Osborne welcomed Beijing's investments here with open arms. So where do we stand on the London-Beijing axis, London-Beijing relations, and indeed general relations between the West and China? Joining us now is George Magnus. He's associate at Oxford University's China Centre and research associate at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. He also wrote the book back in 2019 called Red Flags, why China's uh, she is... uh, is in Je- why China? Why she's China is in jeopardy. I'll get the name right in a moment. Let me ask you then, George. Welcome to the program. Why do you think the tone has changed so markedly now between the West and China? Well, I think the um, uh, relations had started to chill. I think um, really in the wake of the trade war, which um, former President Trump launched. Um, in roughly 2018, but I don't think it was very obvious at the time that there'd been a kind of a sea change in the attitude of um, the British government or, uh, or indeed Parliament. But I think if we were to kind of single out, you know, an event that basically changed it all, you'd have to say it was the pandemic. 
Um, so I, w- I don't want to say that the pandemic is completely responsible for the change in view, but it has been, I mean, within my mind, without question, you know, mm-hmm. the, the single biggest contributor to that change of attitude. Um, and it kind of spans everything really from the secrecy and the opaque way in which um, uh, Beijing basically approached um, kind of the information uh, gaps or, or, you know, allowed, um, you know, um, opacity to kind of prevail in the early years or early months or weeks of the pandemic. Um, and then obviously the whole kind of diplomacy, wolf, so-called wolf warrior diplomacy that ensued in 2020, um, to the point really where, you know, now everything has become really um, a battlefield between economic and national security and trying to draw red lines and so on and so forth. Mm. So then in that case, on the kind of specific cyber hacking issue, why would China be hosting sort of cyber hackers attacking Microsoft? I mean, how does that sort of fall into your thinking and narrative around things? Yeah, I'm not really familiar, to be honest, with the details of this. Mm. I I mean, we've had a number of instances um, during the last couple of years, at least, in which um, uh, Western intelligence uh, uh, services have basically identified or think they've identified either Russian or Chinese um, uh, hackers or, you know, complicit uh, in in hacks. Um, this is obviously quite a serious one. I mean, I, I think it would be churlish to say they are the only ones that are doing it. You know, I think we are probably all involved um, somehow in um, sort of cyber spying and, you know, listening in on one another's you know, conversations and, you know, intelligence details. I think sort of willful um, uh, kind of undermining of, uh, I don't know, utilities and other companies actually is probably something that's rarer than that. But um, um, it's um, it clearly is something that is going on. Um, I'm, I'm just not sure how you go about putting an end to it. But it is indicative of the fact or a symptom of the fact that we have, um, you know, a kind of very kind of tetchy, feisty relationship in which um, mm-hmm. uh, all sorts of previous um, standards of behaviour have pretty much gone out of the window, I think. Well, well, George, on that point, really, then, I mean, you say tetchy and feisty, and it's certainly uh, the wolf warrior diplomacy issue you're talking about, but, but in other ways, too, seems to be some of it coming from China. How does China react? How is it likely to react to a, a greater pushing away from, from the West? Well, I think um, this is certainly one thing which the, at least the, that has happened um, since uh, President Biden came to, to office, which, uh, which didn't exist before. So before, um, the U.S. administration, you know, was just as you know, prepared to make enemies of its allies, so to speak, as it was of, um, of, a, of a, a, a kind of a difficult relationship with China. I think under President Biden, the idea of, of trying to forge um, unity of, of view and approach and of purpose amongst allies and other uh, what shall I say, liberal-leaning democracies. I think I prefer to use that phrase rather than the West, because obviously we're now talking about also including countries like Japan and South Korea um, and others in Asia. Um, so I think this is something which the Chinese do not uh, appreciate that much. I think they, they do find it um, awkward and much more difficult to deal with than if the um, you know former um, 
democratic countries were, had been kind of divided and fighting amongst themselves. So to that extent, it is, um, it is uh, from, from at least from our point of view, quote unquote, it is a kind of a step forward, um, which is to, to try to coordinate our, our approaches and our thinking. Mm. How much do you think, though, um, I mean, obviously you wrote a whole book about it in 2019. How much do you think that Xi's China is making this anti-democracy case, this case for autocracy? Is it sort of a battle of ideas versus you know, even more so perhaps than economics? Um, it, it's hard to tell the difference, to be honest, because uh, I, I, I don't mean that you can't tell the difference. I mean, it, it's hard to know where the kind of the um, mm. uh, the dividing lines are, because um, unlike the Soviet Union, uh, China is deeply, deeply integrated into the global economy. Um, and, you know, and it wasn't all a bad thing. Uh, but um, the, the fact of the matter is that because of that level of integration, um, we are finding it very difficult now to kind of uh, separate economic security and financial security on the one hand from national security on the other. So there, it's a very kind of murky area. Um, but I think that, um, you know, for all of China's kind of rhetoric, which it likes to propagate abroad about win-win relationships and, you know, uh, a, a shared uh, future for the community of mankind, I mean, that's the kind of the rhetoric that it likes to, to propagate in its kind of international relations. At home, you know, the language is much more about struggle, about uh, the long-term campaign for dominance, um, about, um, you know, hostile foreign forces, which they used uh, very much, particularly in conjunction with the um, struggles or the, you know, repression going on in Hong Kong, for example. So, um, yeah, I mean, it is, a, it is fundamentally a battle of ideas and of values, I think, between liberally-leaning democracies and China um, in terms of the conduct of the global economy, the governance of international institutions like the World Trade Organization and the IMF, uh, the World Bank, and so on. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, this is really why I think it's very difficult for any of us to see any glimmer of, I mean, we can hope for some kind of stable disequilibrium, as we like to say in, in economic parlance, um, so that, you know, that it's not good, but it's not, you know, a disaster. But we, we don't really see any uh, kind of near-term glimmer of hope for normal, what we called normalization of what the situation was like maybe 10 or 20 years ago. And George, I suppose the key question, how strong is Xi Jinping? I mean, could what's happened recently, for example, is crackdown on big tech companies in China, intervention in the economy. Is, could that risk his position because he's undermining perhaps what makes him strong? Yeah, there is the 64 trillion yuan question. Um, and uh, it's one which a lot of China experts pour over, you know, day in, day out without really reaching any form of closure, to be honest. And people have different views. I mean, uh, we look at sometimes China's behavior. Um, sometimes it seems like it's going on. It's a very truculent uh, country that's going on the offensive and, you know, kind of almost peacock-like um, advertising its, you know, inevitability of China's rise and so on and so forth. Sometimes it feels like it's in a state of siege um, where, uh, you know, its leaders uh, seem to be very insecure. And, you know, why would they act like this if they weren't mm. uh, fundamentally worried? Uh, so it's, it's quite confusing um, <clears throat> uh, to outsiders, probably to many people inside China as well. And we don't really know. I mean, yeah. Xi Jinping certainly seems to be 
somebody who has mastered control of the party inside China, of the internal security apparatus, is removed yeah. uh, recalcitrant generals and uh, people in the Don't. People's Liberation Army. But um, hard to say really how secure his position is. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.